We're working our way through the book of Romans, and I knew when we started that sooner or later we would get here. The most difficult chapter in the Bible, in some people's minds at least, and why we need to study it. Romans chapter 9. Tonight we're going to just start to peel back the layers of it. We're not going to finish our study of this topic or this passage. We'll just introduce it, get some concepts that I think are important on the table. It's a theological sort of a chapter. You have to think. We can do that. Romans 9, 1 to 14. Y'all set? Okay. It's 613. And I'm going to try and do this in half an hour-ish. Half an hour-ish means between a half hour and 95 minutes somewhere. No, I'm kidding. I am kidding. 9-1, we'll start. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now, when somebody starts... I'm speaking the truth, I'm not lying, my conscience bears witness, and the Holy Spirit hears what I'm saying, then you know they're going to say something really shocking, and he does. Verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. This is Paul. For I wish that, does he mean this? I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, he means brothers and sisters, kinsmen according to the flesh, that's ethnic Jews, he's a Jew, and he says something really startling there, he says, uh, I'd rather be eternally damned if my fellow Jews could be saved and not cut off from Christ. I don't know. I I read that and I go, wow. Who talks like that? Verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. They've got all these blessings, he says. Five. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Descendant of David. Who is God? Okay? Anybody that thinks that the Bible doesn't say that Jesus Christ is God is just... That wouldn't be kind. But they're not reading it very carefully. Let's do it that way. Is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So, all the advantages. Through them we have... uh, The scriptures, the patriarchs, the prophets, the promises, the Christ has come. But they, by and large, they're rejecting him. Ethnic Jews, to this day, reject Jesus as the Messiah. Six. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. This is his concern. Covenants, promises made to Abraham and his descendants. And they're all, 
going to be cut off from Christ, a lot of them. So what happens to these promises? What about these covenants? What about the deal God made with the Jewish people? Does God keep his word or not? See, that's the issue here. It's not as though the word of God has failed. Okay, Paul, how are you going to explain this? Because you just said a lot of them are going to be cut off from Christ. Here's his explanation, right in the middle of verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel, it's Abraham, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Wait a minute. Seven, and not all the children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, now he quotes the scriptures. It's from Genesis through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Paul's going to keep explaining here. He knows this is a hard concept for people to latch on to. And he writes to a lot of Jewish people. Eight, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. Not just Jewish in descendancy. That's not the people of God. Not anymore. There's a lot of Christians that don't understand that. It's not all eight, not all the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Children of the promise. Now he's got to explain what that is. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Remember that? Old, old Sarah and old, old Abraham says that that she was as good as dead. (laughs) What a beautiful way. eh? Oh, yeah, you love it. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. That promised Abraham. Ten. And not only so, there's, there's more. But also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, okay, so we're going to be talking a lot about election. What is this purpose of election? In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of his call, she was told. This is Rebecca. The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. In his book, it's dated now a bit, but chosen by God, famed Calvinist R.C. Sproul claims, quote, the entire edifice of Arminian free will theology is destroyed by the single verse, quote, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 916. Now, whether or not Sproul is right, Romans 9 is certainly the ground that's claimed by Calvinists of all stripes, and for pretty good reason. I have four references. Are they in your notes? Okay. 
I mean, look at some of these things, 9 and 11, 10 and 11 of chapter 9. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. Or look at 15 and 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Or look at 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. There you go. Seems open and shut. Look at 21 and 22. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? So what if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared, get this, prepared for destruction. So there are perhaps billions of people on planet Earth who were created by God for no other purpose than to eternally damn them. To reveal his wrath. That's their purpose on earth. That's, that's uh, striking stuff. You got a family of six. Four were elect. Two were created solely for the purpose of being eternally damned. Are you happy with that? And yet, those are pretty strong verses of scripture, I think. There are others, but you get, you get my point. These verses have given rise to a whole system of scriptural interpretation held by many devout brothers and sisters in Christ. I hope you heard me say that. A system that sees God randomly. That's what unconditional means. There, there's nothing in the person that merits whether they are elect or not elect. Okay? That's what unconditional means. Randomly pre-selecting people, both for eternal life and eternal damnation. And many Christians find that doctrine of unconditional election just so clearly taught. And this chapter, more than any other portion of Scripture, is usually the one used to reinforce that, that lens through which Scripture gets read and interpreted. And all of this gives rise to a key question about what we're doing tonight. Why is chapter 9, I mean 9, 10, and 11, but let's just look at 9. Why is chapter 9 where it is in the book of Romans? A lot of commentaries treat chapters 9, 10, and 11 as a kind of parenthesis in which Paul leaves his previous thoughts a little bit and launches into a discussion on the plight and the future of the nation Israel. And if that's the whole truth of the matter, then it's easy to conclude that it teaches this kind of unconditional election or selection 
of the eternal state of individuals, either to eternal life or eternal damnation, long before they are ever born. I don't see it that way. I say that humbly. There are people smarter than I who do. I want to try and go down a different path, and it's going to take a few weeks. I don't mean we're staying here for a few weeks, but, well, a few Sunday nights. Point number one. Here's what I see as pivotal. The purpose of Paul's teaching on Israel in these chapters isn't, isn't a departure from his teaching at the end of Romans chapter 8. I don't mean to wear you out, but I, I suppose we should s- look again at those opening verses of chapter 9. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have, boy, I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's very particular saying according to the flesh. He means ethnic Judaism. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants. I'd like to look at each of these individually. We just can't. The giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. There were all sorts of promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But, here it is. It's not as though the word of God had failed. And there it is. It's in that last phrase. Six. It's not as though the word of God has failed. This is Paul's concern. This is why Romans 9 is in your Bible. It's the motive behind everything he's going to write through 9, 10, and 11. Because he's made some sweeping promises to the Christians at Rome. Jew and Gentile. But he's made promises to those Christians at Rome. He hasn't met them, but he writes to them regarding their safety and their security in Christ Jesus. Here's what he just said in chapter 8. These are wonderful verses. We talked about them. I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all the church said... Praise God. Good stuff. And then, right on the heels of that, he bemoans the present state of his own people, the Jews. And here's the thing. God had made a deal with the Jews. Right? God had made a covenant with them. And after receiving so many promises, so many blessings, so many benefits, they've departed from their call. They failed so miserably. Paul actually says he would trade places with them. He would offer himself to be 9-3, accursed and cut off from Christ, if that would bring his people, the Jews, back to God. So, so we know, we know for sure, Paul must have seen the situation of the Jews as a bleak one indeed. He says he would rather be cut off from Christ because that's how he saw them cut off from Christ. He would trade places. Otherwise, his words make no sense at all if they're not in a bad spot. 
Agreed? That's how he sees them. So Paul sees ethnic Jews as being cut off from Christ. And most of them have had never seen or heard Christ, ever. That's a key point for interpreting the rest of this chapter. If these Jews were not going to be cut off from Christ, they would have to make the same response to the bare promise of God that Abraham himself had made in order to be justified. And Abraham wasn't justified by election. He was justified by, that's what the Bible says. And they would have to trust the same promise, only they didn't. They didn't. Cut off from Christ, he says. Back to our text. Paul knows, after what he's just said at the end of Romans 8, that he has, he has some explaining to do. If God made a covenant with the Jews, if he had promised to be with them and to be their God, and if they were now cut off from Christ, then how could any of God's promises be trusted? It's a big issue. If the Jews, who were, who were so constantly called God's elect, God's chosen, if they could slip away and be cut off from Christ, what about all those other wonderful promises that have been addressed to the Christians at Rome and to Don Horbin and to everyone else in this room? What about those problems? What about life after death? What about heaven? What about eternal life? There's a lot at stake here. This, I believe, is the issue of chapters 9, 10, and 11. So you can fiddle around with the spinning of theology, and I don't mind, but these have something to do with us and trusting God. Trusting God. Point number two. It's very important to understand the reason Paul says the promise to Israel hasn't failed. So he starts out his whole argument with statements that are as clear as he can possibly make them. Nothing in these three chapters makes any sense until one has a firm truth established in mind. It's verses 6 through 8. It's not as though the word of God has failed. That's not where the failure lies. So the failure is not on God's end. The failure, of course, is they, they didn't believe his promise. Faith. They didn't put faith in his promise. It's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. What's the big deal with that? Well, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the, the children of the promise. It was always God's plan to work through promise and trusting a promise. very clear. Paul says if you look at the Jews as a whole, ethnic Judaism, all the physical descendants of Abraham, well then it looks as though God's promise to keep a people has failed. If you take Israel to mean all of the physical descendants of Abraham, you will think the promises of God have not stood firm because many Jews have rejected Christ and have died without faith. 
But while God did make an eternal covenant with Israel, he didn't include all who were Abraham's offspring. That's the point. He included those who would believe in his promise. That's the point. Point number three. The examples of Isaac, Ishmael, Jacob, Esau, and their purpose in Paul's explanation. Now you, gotta, now you have to do a little work. This is in verses 7 to 13. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but, and now he mentions it specifically, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. Notice the emphasis over and over on promise, promise. God's purpose in the promise, God's purpose. This is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only so, now he moves from Abraham and Sarah, he's moving on. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, okay? There we are, remember that phrase. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So now Paul is continuing to unpack this idea of God's promise for Israel not having failed. He's very concerned about this. The promise, the promise still stands, like we sang. Promise hasn't failed. It's still standing. His promise didn't fail when it's properly understood. So the Jewish people, taken as a whole, all the ethnic descendants of Abraham, they may have forsaken Christ, and they may have forsaken their calling. But God's promise never was to Israel as a whole. God's ultimate promise would be fulfilled only for the Israel of faith. Or as Paul would put it, only the remnant within Israel. The children of promise, 9.8. So that means that entrance into this covenant was by placing faith in divine promise. Paul simply insists on this. Now, he wants to prove that this is not some novel new idea. He wants to show this was always God's plan. That's what he's doing. So he goes right back into Jewish history about as far as you can go. Abraham. Abraham had more than one child. You need a little bit of Bible history here. Paul describes the history of the birth of two of Abraham's sons. First, Paul describes the birth of Ishmael. That was through Hagar. Remember? Sarah's handmaiden. Sarah was sure she would never be able to conceive. The birth of Ishmael through Hagar, Sarah's handmaiden. Then he describes the birth of Isaac through Sarah's Abraham's aged wife, Sarah. 
Paul cites these two first examples as proof of his initial driving proposition that not all of Abraham's children are members of God's Israel. That's why Hagar's offspring, Ishmael, and his seed are called, do you see it in verse 8? They're called children of the flesh. While Sarah's offspring, Isaac, and Isaac's seed, they're called children of the promise. So, so Ishmael and his descendants, children of the flesh. Isaac and his seed, children of promise. Now, they both had fleshly bodies. This Ishmael was born as a result of what two consenting adults could do in a sexual relationship on their own. Isaac was produced with the help of God. It could never come except by God's promise. Children of the flesh, right? Children of promise. Children of promise. This distinction is just so key to understanding everything important in this difficult chapter. We're meant... We're meant to ask the question, why does God accept the seed of Isaac and not the seed of Ishmael? Doesn't seem fair. What's behind this discrimination? Is it because one has Abraham as his father and the other doesn't? Well, no, that's not it, because both are descendants of Abraham. One with Hagar, one with Sarah, but Abraham's daddy for both of them. Yet they're not all both Israel. Children of promise in the fullest sense. Why? And there's only one answer to that question. And it has everything to do with a phrase I asked you to remember a little earlier tonight. Isaac is the one through whom God's blessing will come in order that 9-11, God's purpose of election might continue. God's purpose of election might continue. And God's purpose of election has always been to demonstrate redemption was through trust in divine promise. And God wants that purpose to continue. It's not that Isaac was a better person than Ishmael. Rather, Ishmael is called a child of the flesh because he was a product of what Abraham could accomplish on his own without the special Promised provision of God. Do you see how all this points to Christ? The special promised provision of God. God was never going to produce salvation on the basis of human work and accomplishment. And so right back to Abraham... God starts to demonstrate how he will perform his saving work in this world. So, to demonstrate this, he gave a promise to Sarah long after she had any ability on her own to give birth. And that, once again, was to demonstrate God's, quote, purpose and election. God's electing, delivering work would come by faith in a promise. It would not be the result of human accomplishment or effort. But Paul's not done. I hope you're still with me. Surely, someone might say this. 
God's choice of Isaac over Ishmael was because while Ishmael's father was Abraham, his mother was a slave woman, an outsider. So Abraham was the father of both. But Sarah was the mother of Isaac. The slave woman was the mother of Ishmael. And it's, it's as though Paul anticipates that objection. And, and he, takes, he takes his logic a step further in the story of the birth of Jacob and Esau. That's in uh, 10, 11, 12. He says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done neither good or bad, in order, here it is again, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of his call. She was told, this is Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau have I hated. Now for some who might be either new or maybe just a bit rusty in Old Testament history, Isaac grew up and he married Rebecca. Rebecca gave birth to twins, Jacob and Esau. And Paul uses this example even more forcefully than the one of Ishmael and Isaac. And it's more powerful because he closes the loophole from the first example. Jacob and Esau have the same father and the same mother. More than that, they're conceived basically at the same time. So in other words, why Paul uses this is it would be almost impossible to create a situation where there was less to differentiate the two offspring than Jacob and Esau, right? Almost nothing to differentiate between them. And that's the whole point. God was proving to the whole world that his electing work wouldn't stand on either of the two foundations manifested in these two examples from Israel's history. Okay, Isaac is the pattern over Ishmael to prove election would stand by faith in divine promise alone. Jacob is the pattern over Esau to show every member of the Jewish nation that election would not stand either by birth order or any other regulation of ethnic lineage. Paul wants to close, close the loopholes and say it, it's God, God's purpose in election has to stand. He, he uses these examples to show here, here's God's purpose in election. It would always come through faith in a divine promise. It would always come through faith in a divine promise. There are no other loopholes. Final thoughts. Four. Final thoughts as we wrap up this portion of the study. By this portion, I mean tonight. It's not like we've got another portion later on. Don't worry. First, the Jews, right through the times of Christ, insisted on locking up the terms of divine election on ethnicity. So they put God in this box of their Jewishness. John the Baptist and then Jesus, they would come and call these people to repentance. And for the most part, they refused to budge, almost always. 
And so often did they respond just relying on their ethnicity, their Jewishness. They did it so many times that there's one time when John actually stops their objection before they even utter it. It's a really neat passage. It's in, Roma, it's in Matthew 3, 9 and 10. John is speaking to these Jewish leaders and he tells them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he goes, and do not presume to say to you, don't even start thinking this. He goes, I know where you're going. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I'm telling you, I bet you they didn't like this. God is able to, from these stones to raise up descendants of Abraham. I can just make them if I want. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. You want to rely on this? This is what you want to stand on instead of God's promise? Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The good fruit is faith in Christ. These people did all sorts of good deeds. So the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, they were being called to avoid eternal judgment and to repent of their sins. In other words, it's assumed that they can repent and escape damnation and escape judgment. They're blamable for their refusal over and over. We have Abraham. So they made God's election, God's purpose in election, locked into a matter of physical descent. And John said that'll never stand. That's Paul's argument. That's Paul's argument in Romans 9. B, 4B. <clears throat> Many references to election in Romans 9 deal with divine assignment of responsibility rather than eternal destiny. And we know this must be true because the Bible makes it vividly clear that Abraham's children can and have been eternally lost. It tells us that in both Old and New Testaments. I won't take the time. It's in Amos 9, 7, 8, 9, 10. Here's words from the New Testament. Jesus in Matthew 8, 11, and 12. Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let me give you some context. These are the words Jesus speaks. They're the words Jesus speaks right after the manifestation of the great faith of that centurion, that Gentile centurion. Come, my son, desperately ill. You don't even have to come under my roof. Just speak the word. It's a Gentile. And Jesus praises that Gentile's faith. He gives the man credit for his faith. These words show how that faith is the condition for saving grace, not ethnicity. And to make his point even more potent, Jesus reminds his Jewish audience that many of the sons of the kingdom, that's the Jews, 
they would end up in outer darkness. So take note of that. Literal descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in outer darkness. This centurion, this Gentile, look at his faith. He trusts. He trusts. That's, that was always God's purpose in election. See? A third way we know that divine election doesn't seal eternal destiny from Romans 9 is the wonderful fact that those who were not descendants of Abraham could nonetheless be members of the divine covenant. There are just so many examples. Ishmael is circumcised, becoming a member of the covenant promise. That's in Genesis 17:25. Any of Esau's descendants could enter into the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. Foreigners, Gentiles, were invited to join Israel. Genesis 17, 10 to 13. In other words, they would become elect by joining Israel. They weren't elect to be put into Israel. Do you see the difference in those two things? They would inherit the blessings by becoming one of God's elect people. Outsiders could join. And lastly, one final distinction. There are different kinds of election dealt with in Romans chapter 9. Uh, the first five verses have the general election of all the Jews. They've been given the promises, the covenants, all those blessings. That's, he's talking about all the Jews there. That election is distinct from Paul's teaching of this remnant in Israel in 9, 6 through 8. Children of promise. So Paul keeps on repeating this idea of divine promise Faith in the divine promise. The Jews as a whole haven't done that. They're blamable for that. It's their fault. But some did. And that reveals that was always God's plan. Election through faith in divine promise. I know I didn't answer all the questions. I didn't expect to. We'll do this a bit more in the next couple of weeks. Let's pray together.